The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome to our Wednesday evening practice meeting. My name is Ramesh Sairam. Um, I'm one of the group of folks that uh, subs for Mark and Shelley when they're out of town. Um, I've been coming to Common Ground for since 2005. Um, I currently serve on the board. Um, I do a few workshops. Um, the one I'm doing this year is on the Noble Eightfold Path. I'm a psychiatrist by profession. Um, I, I give this um, little caveat before most of my talks, which is that I don't sit here as a teacher. I've done very little by way of sutta studies or any deep um, um, philosophical spiritual studies, but I am committed to practice. And uh, since I've been asked to come and give these talks, what I usually do is share my experiences. Uh, it's mostly of a practical nature. Um, sometimes it may sound like a support group, as in you folks listening to me vent, but uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I've appreciated it. It's really enhanced my practice. Um, so uh, today's topic comes out of a transition in my life professionally, a good one, um, so which allows me more time, I'm hoping, to devote to practice. And so uh, there's this dichotomy that some of you may have heard of if you come to Common Ground or being connected to a mindfulness meditation, which is that between vipassana and samadhi, or concentration. Um, so I'm trying to solve that problem, uh, at least in my head. And so today will be a humble beginning. And I want to talk about what I'm discovering about samadhi practice, or concentration practice. So uh, one thing that's helped me just in the last couple of years and with, uh, with regards to my relationship to mindfulness practice, is to have some clarity about what am I doing and why am I doing this. You know, I've been coming here for almost 15 years. I've clearly had some progress and some benefit, but very often I come across this kind of ceiling effect. I've been doing this, I'm spinning my wheels, and what's the next step? Um, and I realized that there are two approaches to this um, uh, practice. One is um, you can look upon meditation, meditative practices as a component of a healthy lifestyle, just like diet, exercise, having good social company, having good hobbies. Um, and for many of us, our life circumstances are such that that's all we can do. You know, we can set aside 30 minutes, 40 minutes, uh, meditation time every day, um, but the rest of the time is taken up with raising families, uh, taking care of elderly parents, etc. But it's good to be clear about that because we all have this tendency to get to a nirvana or bus, like by tomorrow or at least by the end of this week. Uh, and so if we, we're not clear about what it takes to get there and what time and other commitments uh, that are necessary, then we can create false expectations and then also set ourselves up for a sense of failure. And those of us with self-esteem problems, we can then turn and blame ourselves for failing and then say, I'm no good at this, and then I may as well go do something else. So there's really nothing wrong with this first component I, that I talked about, but it's good to acknowledge it and keep doing it until your life circumstances allow you more time. And that's one of the things that's happening for me right now. Although I hadn't planned it, um, I just stepped down from my medical director position at the end of last month, and suddenly all this time opened up. 
It's like when the um, air conditioning unit shut down, suddenly you realize there was so much silence. And so now it's like, I have no work to do. So, um, but very quickly it can get filled with, uh, with junk, and that's the other part of recognition. The other approach to practice is for those of you, and for hopefully me right now, where life does allow you some uh, time, some leisure, to get into this in a more a detailed way. But if you are really committing yourself there, then we'd better stop conning ourselves into thinking that 30 minutes of meditation every day, followed by 10 hours of mindlessness the rest of the day, will somehow get us nirvana. All it gets us is 30 minutes of meditation a day. That's all. And a lot of uh, false belief that I'm getting somewhere. And so that led to my restudying of the Noble Eightfold Path last year, and then Mark encouraging me to do those workshops, which is what I've been doing this year. So which is a recognition that this practice can either be a, a component of a healthy lifestyle or an integrated practice that combines all aspects of your life. So, as I said, 10 hours of mindlessness on Twitter, Facebook, Internet, whatever else, followed by an hour of solid concentration, really is what it is. There's not much wisdom there. The other part is you can do, you can commit yourself to mindfulness, meditation, and everything else, but if the, your daily life, what you do in your interactions with people, etc., are full of mindlessness, full of unwholesome speech, unwholesome actions, then that nullifies it. And that's why if you look at the Eightfold Path, you have wise view, wise intention, that sets the kind of foundation for why we are practicing, followed by wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. That's the living part. And then it's that wholesome living that then facilitates our ability to make the right effort to get into states of concentration and mindfulness. And that's the totality of the path. Again, it sounds big. We can kind of dip, it, dip our feet into it. But it's, for me, I can, I'm reiterating it several times, partly for my own sake, because my habits are those of mindlessness, to say that if I am serious about my commitment to a wholesome life of, you know, hopefully some wisdom, then I'd better get serious about uh, watching what I say, how I say, etc. So coming back to Samadhi. So with this kind of background, um, samadhi or concentration practice is a key component uh, of uh, this from the kind of practical aspects. So assuming that you're leading a wholesome life and you, are, you have the right intention and your right energies in terms of uh, your uh, cognitive framework, then you decide that you begin to recognize that your mind tends to jump around a lot. And so what can I do to calm things so that I can watch what's going on? And so then you hear teachers say that, well, practice concentration concentrates your mind, it stills your energies, and then you can watch what's going on. So that's the kind of basic background to why a concentration practice is helpful. So before I go into some of the kind of technical details, just a, a few words about some of the terms that you'll come across, which will uh, more, which often lead to more confusion, um, but let me see if I can break that cycle. So one is, um, I'm just going to list those terms and then go one by one, just covering the main ones. So vipassana. Um, so that's a Pali term. Um, a kind of a broad, helpful translation would be to see clearly. And so vipassana is a, a, a practice where 
you, uh, you create the intention to watch what's going on in your heart, mind, and body at this moment. That's Vipassana. Um, sati. Sati is translated as mindfulness. And this is the skill you need to do Vipassana. So mindfulness is training the mind to come back to the present moment. And so if you're not in the present moment, you can't see anything that's happening here and now. So you need the sati, the mindfulness, in order to be able to see clearly. Then you come to samadhi. Yeah, you may have sati, but if your mind is jumping around topic to topic every other second, or is kind of constantly reacting to signals that come from outside, then there's not the momentum that's built up for you to be able to stay in the present moment to watch it long enough to have sati and vipassana. That's the role of samadhi, is that you begin to train your awareness to stay with the present moment for longer and longer periods as you continue this practice. So it's just a skill to help you with the other states. But as I said, if your relationship to the practice, because of your life circumstances, is such that you can only devote 30 minutes, 40 minutes a day, and as a part of a wholesome practice, you can still do samadhi practice, because during those times, it does calm your energies, it reduces your blood pressure, reduces your autonomic reactivity, etc. So there are a lot of benefits, but they're compartmentalized to like a healthy lifestyle. So some of the um, English translations of the word samadhi are uh, concentration. Uh, and like many teachers, I have some um, difficulty with that because concentrate has an effortfulness to it. That word means concentrate. There's a forcefulness as opposed to it being a much more relaxed state of awareness. So I'll talk about that in a little bit. The other one is gathering. So what you're doing is gathering your restless energies, all the natural tendency of the mind to go in five or six different directions. You're just gently gathering, like sheep, etc., and you're gathering it, giving it smaller and smaller range or scope in which to rest. And so that's why when I, during the guided meditation, when I advised you to connect with the energy levels, if your energy level is high, you just can't expect your mind to just come back to your breath because that's concentrate. That is like forcing your energies to come to one narrow point, which inevitably will lead to friction and um, more problems. But if you are gentle, at the beginning of the meditation, you can use this entire room as the container, and as your energy is still, you can get smaller and smaller, and eventually perhaps even come back just to your breath. Two other terms, uh, one is called samatha. You may have heard of that. And that is a consequence of samadhi practice. It is a state of tranquility. So you, if you do this consistently for long enough, even during periods of meditation practice, suddenly you will find this amazing stillness that settles in. You can't contrive it. You can't force it. When it happens, just acknowledge it without getting attached to it. Because those of you who experience that tranquility will know how seductive it is. But it's just a product of your energies being still. Similar to when the air conditioning unit went you know, silent, there was this amazing stillness. It was just a product of cause and effect. There's nothing fantastic about it. So that's samatha. And the last one you may have heard of is called jhana. It's very common in the vipassana, uh, the kind of teachings we follow here. And those are actual levels of concentration. That, if you want to get into deeper sutta studies, you can go in that direction. I'm pretty ignorant, except that they are levels of concentration. 
Any questions this far? Am I, is it making sense, the, the structure and the flow? It's okay to say no. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we, all you can do is set the groundwork. And so I think we may be touching upon that as well. Oh. So. Okay. So Vipassana or Samadhi. So as I said, just be honest with yourself. If your life circumstances are tight, just use Samadhi as a good, healthy lifestyle, just like exercise or diet. Um, so don't, uh, and so you, you will find some benefit, like you sleep better, you may be more patient, you may be less irritable, but again, you're not looking for those things. Those things are natural outcomes of good habits. It's like the advice we give many folks who are trying to lose weight. Do all the right things and you may lose weight, but there are many other factors involving weight in weight loss more than just diet and exercise, including genetics, etc. So it's better to lead, uh, have, a have a constellation of healthy lifestyle habits uh, and then leave the outcome to the circumstances. Um, so, you, but if you are, if you have the ability to commit yourself to the totality of the practice, samadhi is just a skill you need to do vipassana. Vipassana is where the wisdom comes. That's where you learn the mechanics of dukkha, the distress that arises in our life, uh, etc. So uh, then, it's not about if or this or that. It is that. Depending on the circumstances, if you find that your mind is restless and you're bouncing it on, you may want to some, spend some time to calming it before you start watching. Because in a state of restlessness, if you start watching your mind, you're going to be going in 10 different directions and really not watching anything. And so both are important components, but um, they kind of play uh, side by side, supporting each other. But also remember that a calm mind is not necessarily a wise mind. In fact, for many of us, insights have arisen in times of distress and not being calm, but we could, you can be aware while being distressed. In fact, some of the states of uh, tremendous awareness, mindfulness, are states of pain, physical pain, states of intense anger, states of intense grief. And so calmness of mind doesn't necessarily mean we are wise. A burglar would be a very wise person otherwise. I mean, they, a burglar's awareness of all sens sensations, sight, sound, touch, everything is intense. I mean, they have practiced it to perfection, but in the service of a completely unwholesome task called stealing. And so that would be a very kind of a graphic example of calmness of mind, steadiness of uh, awareness does not equate wisdom. Um, Another kind of more secular, mundane area where um, concentration practices help are in sports. I mean, if you watch any, you know, uh, any professional golfer, just look at the amount of noise, the amount of distraction, but also the amount of story about, I'm going to miss this putt, etc. all that they have to ignore and just focus on making the putt. So they have tremendous skills of concentration, but as Tiger Woods demonstrated, 
the rest of his life was a complete unwholesome mess, at least until last year. And he does practice mindfulness meditation, but just in that narrow area. And, the Buddha, and if you follow the mythology of the Buddha, he himself discovered that the deep states of concentration only took him so far. And, you know, uh, the Indian meditation techniques uh, were extreme, even now are incredibly uh, technically oriented. You can attain deep stage, stages of samadhi, um, but that's all they are. And they are contingent on being in that state. So apparently he realized after working with several teachers that if my state of calmness is contingent on me sitting for two hours, three hours, then that's not really wisdom. I need to be out there with the people, and how can I have peace and wisdom when I'm in daily life? And then I have to acknowledge this, or this may just be me making excuses. It does seem to me that some people seem to be wired uh, to get into states of samadhi quicker than at least me. And so, uh, but I've heard some other wiser teachers also acknowledge that, including Gil Franzdahl out on the West Coast, that um, samadhi does seem to come more easily to some people. Um, so for me, it's not an excuse. I just suck at it. So. <laughs> okay, um, so, so one way, the reason um, some teachers and I have uh, tried to get away from the word concentration is there is this concentrate. And there is this focus, there is an effort, there is this you know, narrowing, which is somewhat contradictory to a purpose of using this, which is to open our awareness and to connect to what's happening, because Vipassana is the eventual goal. So if you are using this as a healthy skill, then practice the technique that I talked about. Pick an object of meditation, and then just train your body, uh, train your awareness to keep coming back to it over and over again. Just the same way as they say, you train a puppy. Or any, any habit, uh, you want to train your fingers to play the piano, just do the same skills again and again and again, and you will get good at it. So that's, there, using the word concentration is not a bad thing, because you are deliberately focusing to the exclusion of everything else that's happening in your body and mind. So nothing wrong with that. But if samadhi practice is a, is a component of the totality of Vipassana samadhi practice, then you want the, the kind of concentration you're having, the kind of awareness you're having is more receptive as opposed to chasing after an object. So one way of looking at concentration is there is an object and I'm going to focus on it. So I am going in there and I'm excluding everything else. The other one is I am here, I'm grounded in the present moment, I'm going to use this gentleman as my object of meditation, but I am aware of things that are happening. So this kind of anchors me to the present moment, but then I also notice that something happens here that's tantalizing, my mind goes off there. So that's the watching the Vipassana of my mind is bored with this gentleman already, he's a fellow baldy, yeah, let me look for something else, and boom, it goes. So you then begin to see the mechanics of, I'm in a peaceful place. This is a peaceful setting. I've dedicated, decided that the next half an hour, I'm going to sit and stare at this gentleman, and my mind wants to go off for tomorrow, fireworks, sweets, whatever else. And that's when, that's the Vipassana setting in. But if you start chasing after that, then you'll realize that your momentum will go off into proliferating stories. So then you come back. Okay, that can wait. 
I'll drop that, come back here. So this is the kind of concentration or samadhi practice that begins to serve you better as part of your, um, the totality of the practice. So you can pick a sound, you can pick a sight, you can pick a body sensation, but just recognize that this is the focus, but you're aware of things, and then you will notice that it goes off. Just drop it, come back. So you're building up, and then there are days when things are remarkably calm, and then you can start exploring other aspects of your body, heart, and mind. So the one key part I would stress at this point learning is the object and the knower. And then, so this would be the objects out there, and I'm going to know it, as opposed to the knower is here, who's receiving various objects as they come, but with one anchor to keep me grounded in the present moment. So that's one kind of fundamental aspect you want to kind of um, contemplate a little bit. Yeah. Well, that's being very gentle. <laughs> Force. No, no, but join the club. But that's an excellent point, and I'm going to touch upon that in a little minute. In a minute. But um, the question was, uh, do you pick something dynamic like the breath, something that's moving, or something that's still, and what are the pros and cons? Again, you don't want to get hung up on what's the right and the wrong thing to do. You want to connect your body, heart, and mind as it is. So on a day when your energy levels are really little and hyper, your mind is bouncing around, what you want to do is keep your eyes open, pick a spot on the wall, and stare at it just to still that level of energies. So there you're truly acknowledging that I am an observer, I am observing, because you need that level of force, in quotes, to match the force of your energies. But then as you get into subtler states of ease and um, awareness, then you want to get into the more subtle sensations. And when they, and that's where the kind of live, fluctuating sensations, because the reason why breath is so wonderful, even though it's frustrating in the early years of your practice, is breath is the amazing window to your state of mind. I mean, you get tantalized about something. And then there was a little explosive sound during the meditation sit, and how many of you may have noticed there was a quickening very quickly. It's just amazing. That's fear, you know, etc. Now, my mind went on to all kinds of stories for about two minutes. <laughs> um, so some of you may have heard of this teacher, contemporary teacher from Burma called Saida Utejaniya. Mark talks a lot about him. He's really influenced quite a, uh, quite a few of us. And he's really focused on, sorry, uh, no pun intended, focused on not focusing. And it's like, because, and his point is don't get hung up on the object. The object is just what it is. There is no wisdom in the object. The object is just something that brings your mind, is a reminder to come back to the present moment so that you can come back to your body and watch what's going on. But if you get hung up on the object, one teacher said, it's called a trance state. 
you know, it's just a trance, it's unmindful, but you just are zoned in. Still better than being on Twitter or, or uh, Facebook. Uh, so, you know, it's all gradations, but don't mistake a trance for um, any kind of mindfulness uh, practice. So some of the uh, practical things. Um, so there is no getting away from the one fundamental, which is regularity of practice. Um, there is no getting away from it. This is a practice. And so the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the more sporadically you do it. In fact, not doing it for a couple of weeks and then coming back for a week may be better than doing it sporadically because the mind then forms false associations between he does practice on these days. And so if you tend to practice on days when you have some pain, the mind can truly form some false psychological connections between samadhi and pain, etc. So it has to be a kind of a regular practice. And so for me, uh, since I'm a human, very fallible, I've, I've, devoted, I've decided six days a week I'll do. If I do it seven days, it's kudos, but six days a week. So it's not a cheating but I also don't feel bad on some days when things are, you know, this, the circumstances are such that I don't sit. But there is this commitment that is essential. Um, you can start with five minutes a day, twice a day for a month or two, and then gradually build up. But be realistic about it. Don't start with 60 minutes a day uh, from the get-go. Uh, unless you are one of those with biological wiring for samadhi, uh, you're likely to not succeed. Um, the, the example I gave earlier about uh, have some clarity about why you're practicing. Some teachers have called it primary intention and secondary intention. And so, again, just when you sit down, just be clear about why you're practicing. Because many of you, I assume, are, are committed to doing Vipassana and Samadhi. But as the gentleman pointed out, on a day when your energy levels are high, you may want to be clear about today, all I want to do is just focus, narrow, so that I can have some peace and forget what happened at work or that argument I had with my friend. And so, whereas other days, when you find that I'm calm, then be clear that as your mind is wandering, use that wandering energies to figure out what is it about this mind on this beautiful, calm day that it wants to go off somewhere else. So, have some clarity about what's happening at that moment so you can choose between this is pure samadhi to get some calmness instilling or I'm going to have some little more open awareness and then be aware of uh, what causes my mind to uh, jump around. And it bears reiteration, be kind, be gentle, including the words we use. And that's why concentration has a force to it. I should, I must. And then also having setting expectations, as the gentleman said. You know, those of you who've done retreats know that you know, when, you, when the calm sets in, it's so unpredictable, so unexpected. Uh, and for me, one of my retreats a few years ago, uh, by day three, I was in this amazing state of calm and peace, but my heart rate was about 85. I was flushed. There was a level of energy. And so that's what it was. You know, we can speculate as to kleshas and energies, but none of that matters. Even though I was in a state of tranquility, samatha, my body autonomically was aroused at that point. That's what it was. But that's Vipassana. That the connection is that you, the insight for me was that break between peace equals um, total peace or total calm in the body. 
and good, they're not necessary. But that's part of the kind of learning of um, uh, Vipassana. Have a variety of options, and this is where I hope I'm answering the question the gentleman posed, which is that, um, that this is a skill where you are training your awareness to come to the present moment. You can do it with your eyes closed, but you can do it with your eyes open equally well. And so walking meditation is probably the best known example of a concentration practice with your eyes open. And so I would say that for, a, for those of you who have busy lives, daily lives, um, be flexible between walking and sitting in terms of your commitment to daily practice. So if you had a busy day or if you had an argument with someone that left you with a lot of distress, forcing yourself to sit down and watch your breath is the worst punishment you can give yourself. Because all you're going to be doing is reliving that argument with that uh, person. Um, whereas that's a great time to substitute a walking meditation. Or if you delayed at work and you come home and your body is at 70 miles an hour, forcing it to sit down and focusing on the breath, again, causes a lot of friction because breaking leads to heat and friction. So you may want to walk at a steady pace and over a course of 30 minutes, slowly oscillate your way down to a gentle pace of walking meditation. So that would be one example. Standing meditation is another. Uh, it's, it's equivalent of walking meditation, but it's one way where, you know, there are days when things have happened where you want to just pace, you want to break some. Sorry, there's no violence in Vipassana. So you feel like venting your energies. So one way of combining Vipassana and Samadhi is to just stand in one place with your eyes open, focused in the middle distance, watching the energies and our reactive patterns. And then after 10, 15 minutes, you realize that the world hasn't really fallen apart just because you didn't act out of those energies. That's a great way of having some samadhi to still your energies, but also watching the Vipassana part of um, uh, the uh, understanding of the causes and effects of our reactive patterns. Uh, and those of you who are familiar with uh, Brahma-Vihara practice, like loving-kindness, and that's a great example of samadhi practice. And so there is something repetitive, there is something non-cognitive, it's all about the heart, and so it always connects you to the present moment, because it's you here and now that's connecting to some goodness, some well wishes that you're sending out there. So the reality, the, the objects don't really matter. You know, your colleague that you hate at work, you may send that person good wishes. Object doesn't matter. It's the opening of your heart that you're connecting to in the here and now that's, bringing, that's keeping you connected to the present moment. And so these Brahma-Vihara practices are considered uh, very effective uh, samadhi practices. A few uh, words of caution about samadhi practice. Um, some I think I've already touched upon. So especially those of you who are good at it, who are good at um, m making commitments, like I'm going to jog, I'm going to run four days a week, and you do it, regardless of summer, winter, fall. And there, there are folks who are really good at these kinds of determined goal setting, and you can do this, you can get good at it, and then you get, get hooked on it. As in, I can't wait to get to that point. Again, as part of a good, uh, healthy lifestyle, nothing wrong with it. But if you want to have a sense of uh, the vipassana, the sati, the mindfulness, etc., then you can use it. So there are days when you may want to go in and do this. Those are the days you may choose to actually pull back 
and say, what happens if I don't have my fix, my samadhi fix? And some folks, uh, especially those who do long retreats, have talked about it can become so addictive that sitting in a retreat, they start planning next retreats. It's almost like getting my next fix. And so it's a very powerful thing. It's a state of tranquility and calm. And if you read some of the quotes from the suttas, it is like, I mean, I found this, um, the experience of absorption is one of intense pleasure and happiness brought about purely by mental means. So when I hear things like intense pleasure and happiness, I think of Hagen does. But if this can do that for me, well, um, so it's like there is a rush to it that you need to watch for. Um, and then as I mentioned earlier, uh, we can often when we decide I'm going to meditate, we equate calmness with meditation. And so then we sit down and say, I hope I'm calmer in 20 minutes. When it doesn't happen, then you say, I'm no good at it. And then you fall off the wagon. Or if you do get calm back to back, then you mistake that for progress in meditation. So either way, just be aware of it. Um, and then again, those of you with self-esteem problems, if you equate calmness and stillness to how good you are or how bad you are, uh, if you're having a string of bad days, you can beat yourself up for being a bad meditator. But also, if you're in a darker place in terms of your mood, you can actually you get into a still darker place about I'm no good at anything, etc. Because often we drift towards these practices in times of distress. And then if the practice itself is not helping, then you can, the feedback can be negative and worsen your distress. So you have to be careful about this is just a skill, I'm doing it as a part of a wellness, but the outcome is not entirely in our hands. Uh, there are so many other factors that contribute to the outcome. And then just remember that, um, like the gentleman used the word force, or concentration, um, is that it can become a grim practice. And that's one of the things, differences between vipassana and samadhi, especially samadhi, which is focused on an external object, is that not only is there no awareness in terms of watching what else is going on in the mechanics of the mind, there is not much heart in it. So samadhi practice, like um, um, brahma-viharas or loving-kindness, um, or you, you can do two things at one point. You're connecting to your heart, you're softening. But if it's just a pure mechanical, intellectual, um, determined effort, then you can get very good at that skill like that burglar without any awareness of the humanity of your situation. Again, not bad, but still um, kind of skirting the edge of uh, potential harm. Because you've, um, I don't know if you heard, but you may have come across some of these meditators who gauge their connection to the practice by how many retreats they've been on. And there is a hierarchy. They can often, you know, they mistake their practice for everything else. And so um, you need to be careful about judging yourselves by how much someone has done or how little you've done, etc. I think I'll pause there. We have about uh, 15, 18, 15 minutes. Since this is a more of a practical talk, um, I'll pause there and uh, open up for some questions. Do you want to uh, hand the mic? Yes. So we can have 15 minutes of 
you concentrating on my ugly face, or uh, we can start some questions and have some distractions. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Adrian, and um, I did start this practice in a time of distress, um, uh, grief and loss, and I have to say that the beginning for me uh, made me more aware of the, uh, you know, ups and downs in the emotional charge and um and so i had to i did i stayed with it and i had to trust that my staying with it uh and observing you know or i wasn't observing i was just actually just um plugged into i wasn't avoiding it what i had been doing before was just avoiding and distracting myself and so uh, even though I wasn't, um, I was discharging uh, pent-up um, emotions for quite a while. And once I realized that that was okay, that I w- it wasn't going to kill me, and um, that this was better than the distractions and the negative behaviors around avoiding pain, and um, once I developed a level of trust, I could stay with it and let the tears flow and let the bucket of distress empty, you know, drop by drop or spoonful by spoonful. And I did, um, through that trust, I did get to um, moments of peace and moments of, isn't it interesting that, you know, in my family, we are so um, kind of uh, seduced by sadness and, you know, the stories, the stories around whatever it is, you know, fatal- or fatalism and, and uh, sort of the beauty of sadness. You know, I, I felt like I was really, um, I had been taught and I was living a, a very rich um, but distressed life and... Um, so the first part, that's all I wanted to say, is that the first part of sitting was more of an opening to the pain. And that scared me. But I did trust that, um, you know, this was a 2,600-year tradition and that I could trust that um, I could stay with it and um, that I could um, get to moments and... Um, more moments and hours and some days of peace and enjoy, but going through it. That's a poignantly beautiful example. So the beauty is in the totality of the picture, the pain, the wisdom that arose. And I'll make a couple of points uh, in this regard because of how how much um, mindfulness meditation has become commoditized. It means you can do anything mindfully these days, including investing on the stock market and uh, yeah, so the the point there is, and in, in my profession, it's equally guilty. I mean, uh, there's no self-respecting psychologist uh, who doesn't put the word mindfulness in their brochure, as if just putting the word there makes it uh, you skilled or going to an MBSR course makes you skilled. 
My concern is less that they may not benefit the patients. My concern is they can actually harm the persons. And so you navigated this. This was an example that is so uh, sensitive and important is that, again, going back to the gentleman's question, you're not doing this to get somewhere. You're doing this because of all the options available, this may offer you some ease, or at the very least, being with the way things are. And so I don't know what the nature of your loss was, but if I were to kind of uh, give a generic example, my neighbor was widowed very young. She was only 53, and so and she had no connection to mindfulness practice, but she did that with her dog. The only way she could get up every morning and face the day was focused on the needs of the dog. And the thing, if you think about the dog out playing with your two-year-old uh, grandchild or a niece or a nephew, you don't require any thinking. In fact, thinking comes in the way of you enjoying a pet or a child. And so there is a mindful way of just being with the way things are. And you can be bawling, you can have the pain, but there is a, that's the equanimity. Equanimity does not mean absence of pain, it's reduction of suffering. Pain is what it is, loss that's life. And then, but what happens when there is loss, there's pain, is that our mind is wired to get away from it. And all the actions we do to get away from it actually magnify the distress, which is what we call dukkha. So the idea of mindfulness meditation in this state is come back to the pain of the situation and then hopefully not do anything to magnify the problem. And then it eases on its own. But if somebody else heard you and said, oh, this lady said by four months she was feeling better and mine should be the same way, that's the wrong lesson. The lesson is it's going to happen at its pace for my body, but I'm not going to wait for something else to happen. Thank you for sharing that example. Amy. First of all, thank you very much for the teaching, Ramesh. Um, I really appreciate the last point you made about how, about the wisdom of when to uh, utilize the practice in a way that serves versus not. Like um, I've seen both in my own practice and with people that I'm teaching to or working with in different capacities when when the practice can actually be detrimental when seated pure uh especially concentration practices at times can become detrimental because i think about it too like most people i know coming myself and, and most people i know coming through to meditation through suffering you know it's not like life was was grandiose and perfect and that's why i decided to inquire on this thing is uh because i was having a mental breakdown and needed something to alleviate the suffering and so when i'm talking to people now and they're like well if it helps when people are suffering, why not just give it to the, to people in the midst of crisis because that will help them when they're suffering. And what I find is that one thing, when I look at uh, when it's beneficial in the midst of challenge or when it become, can become more harmful in the midst of challenge is that uh, I find that for those who, who find it beneficial long term, oftentimes have the causes and conditions in their life around the, uh, the supports in their life around them to be able to hold uh, the challenges that, that they're going through so that the practice can be a complement to the other supports that's there. Right. I find that when it's not, when, when there isn't, the, when the other supports aren't there, um, even for myself, like I've used 
uh, I've used the practice when in the midst of depression, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to like dig deeper in the practice. And at times it's caused me to spiral even deeper into depression. And because those, the supports in my life weren't there and I wasn't, you know, that's, that's not the time to do seated practice. It's time to do more active practice. It's time to use the practice in a different way. And so I think that as mindfulness has become kind of this silver bullet in, you know, our pop culture to fix everything, I think speaking on the nuances of when it's beneficial of, uh, or when, and when it can be harmful is very important. And so I really appreciate that. Thanks for having But you made a, a good point that I wanted to reiterate, uh, creating the conditions. And just like if you want to prepare for a marathon, it's so much easier if you have a buddy who you can run with. Um, it's the same way. I can't tell you how many times I fell off the wagon in my first five, seven years of coming here. But if I did not come here on most Wednesday evenings, I would not have stayed connected. And, I, you know, it was a fiction that I would let Mark down. Uh, you know, but it doesn't matter. It's this a kind of a connection that you commit yourself. So if I don't show up, I'm cheating on Mark kind of stuff. You know, whatever fiction helps you, I know it's that, uh, like, on my way, some of you know I'm a sugar freak. So as I'm heading back to St. Paul on 94, easy or not, easy or not. <laughs> but what's going to save me is the notion that I can't cheat on my wife because we agreed that we'll go to Izzy's together. Not that she's going to find out. I'm going to pay cash. But it's that... <laughs> So, but, but, if, but I found it so true even for mindfulness practice is that do whatever it takes to, for you to succeed. Once the momentum builds up, uh, I haven't come to these talks in a while. I don't want to listen to me talk. So, but, it's that, but I can't tell you momentum works. And after a while, it's like those folks you see running in the middle of winter. You wonder, what are they thinking? They can't help themselves. They've been running all year. It's snowing today. What's the big deal? So, thank you for that. Um, yeah, we have time for a couple of more questions. Anything about the practice itself? Hi, I'm Shannon. Uh, so, I thought about um, the a practice as far as uh, my own practice and a lot of like what I've learned from it. Um, I remember in the beginning of my practice, I was kind of like, I wanted to do sitting practice and not use a chair, but I was having a lot of back problems. And, you know, I worked through kind of like sitting with the pain, understanding the pain and everything. And, um, you know, eventually I did end up like being able to use a cushion and it like worked in that way. And I'm fine. I found that it actually worked in another great way as well. Um, Last month, my practice completely fell through when my health tanked and I was, any free time I had was just, I had to do so many things to take care of my body because, um, you know, I was, I was in so much pain and I was taking antibiotics that were making me really sick. And, you know, at the time meditation seemed impossible, but it kind of gave me some awareness um, it, what like really helped was just this awareness of how I was able to deal with the pain because of my practice. And cause like when the pain hit, it was just like, wait a minute, I've seen this show before. Um, so it's kind of, I was able to kind of be with the pain despite painkillers, pain not really being able to do much for me. It was, 
it actually like helped me mentally. Like the pain was still there, but it greatly helped me, me mentally. So it kind of goes to show that like, as far as the practice goes, like even if you're not seeing something right away and you're kind of thinking, oh, what is this all for? Like I'm finding out that you actually like a lot of times see it later on. Thank you for sharing that. And I had a, a kind of something similar to share. Um, so I came back from India three weeks ago. Some darn mosquito bit me, and I got a fairly uncommon infection called dengue fever. Um, very painful. It's it's, um, but it was that state. But it was easy for me to practice what I did because I've been preaching about it, which is that be with the way things are. It's exhausting. But this is what exhaustion feels like. And every time the mind would go to missing work or my colleagues are helping me, it's all these narratives. That's the way things are given these causes and conditions. So it, so it became a very helpful practice because your body is exhausted. You can't even get out of the, the cushion. So you just stay there. And then between watching Sam and Diane fight it out on cheers, and then you come back. <laughs> that was my discovery. So... Um, they led interesting lives. Um, but it's like, oh, I can do that as a distraction, which is helpful, but then it gets boring, and then you can't sleep even though you're exhausted, but you can come back to this is what an exhausted body feels like that does not like the state. It wants to be back. It wants to be doing. And my story was, it's June, it's spring, it's late spring, what a beautiful day, and I'm stuck here. That's the suffering. So all I could be was with the the pain of the fever, the physical pain, exhaustion, but what I did not have to add was what else I could be doing. And that's again, was a kind of a reinforcement of the amazing grace of this practice, is that uh, if you can connect to it in a real way, it just reduces the magnitude of suffering from this much to the reality of the pain. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.